Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is What's at Stake in Moore v. Harper, Gerrymandering, and More. This show was pre-recorded on September 29th. You can send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Today's show will be hosted by my colleague, John Brautigam, Senior Advisor and Counsel to the League of Women Voters. Here's John. Thank you, everybody, for joining, and good afternoon. This is a webinar for the League of Women Voters of Maine. Uh, we have a, we've had a series of webinars of recent years on a variety of topics, but the, this one today is especially timely. We have a, a really great panel to uh, speak with us about the independent state legislature theory, uh, which is coming before the United States Supreme Court in the case of Morby Harper, scheduled to be argued and decided between now and June 2023. We're going to hear from our panelists uh, up front, and then we're going to have a few questions from myself. As you all know, the League of Women Voters has a rich legacy of over 100 years as a nonpartisan organization, but that does not mean the League is indifferent about consequential questions that could affect the outcome of our elections. The League stands firmly for the fair, orderly, and lawful administration of elections at every level. The League is also supportive of redistricting reform and opposes the drawing of political districts for partisan advantages. And these are all topics which we will touch on today in what promises to be a meaningful and timely conversation. I wanna introduce our two um, speakers today, and I'm not gonna um, be stingy on their uh, introductions because I think they're quite impressive. Professor Derek Muller holds the Ben Willie Professorship in Excellence at the University of Iowa College of Law. He's a nationally recognized scholar in the field of election law. His research focuses on the role of states in the administration of federal elections, the constitutional contours of voting rights and election administration, the limits of judicial power in the domain of elections and the Electoral College. He is widely published and has testified before Congress. And at Iowa, Professor Muller teaches election law, federal courts, civil procedure, and evidence. And my favorite of his credentials in 2021, his second year uh, teaching, uh, professor Muller was selected by the students as the professor of the year. Eliza Swearen Becker serves as counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice, where she focuses on voting rights and elections. Prior to joining the Brennan Center, Eliza was a litigation associate in private practice at Boyce Schiller Flexner and served as a Ford Foundation fellow in the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. After law school, she clerked for Honorable Christina Snyder of the United States District Court for the Central District of California. She's a graduate of Harvard Law School, the Kennedy School, and Brown University. Welcome uh, to our program, uh, Eliza and Derek. I'm going to turn it over to Derek to lead us off with some background. And then after that, we'll turn to Eliza and we'll hear from her and we'll have questions. So Derek, you want to take it away? Uh, well, thanks, John. And there's so many things to talk about here. I'll only give sort of a little bit of the overview. And then hopefully as the Q&A goes on, we can sort of dig into some of these issues. But I'll set up sort of exactly what's happening here uh, in Moore versus Harper. So the Supreme Court granted certiorari. So they're going to hear the case sometime this term. Probably they'll schedule oral argument for December, January, February, likely in that term and issue decision by June. 
so this case comes out of North Carolina dealing with congressional redistricting maps there. Um, so a few years ago, the Supreme Court in a different case, also out of North Carolina called Rucho versus Common Cause said um, the federal courts are not going to be in the business of patrolling excessive partisan gerrymanders. That is, we're not going to take a look at the standards that, that we don't think we are capable of developing. That's going to be a matter for the states, for Congress, for legislatures, for ballot initiatives, whatever it is, it's not going to be us. Um, so that's put a lot of pressure in different places in the system to think about how to address partisan gerrymandering, right? This notion of drawing districts that excessively entrench one political party at the expense of another. Um, so in North Carolina, um, there was some litigation challenging the maps that came out of the 2020 census and the 2021 redistricting cycle, alleging, well, these violate our state constitution because we think there's a, an anti-gerrymandering component inside of our state constitution. So when you look at the state constitution, um, unlike some other states like Florida, which has an express provisions or the fair districts amendment in the Florida constitution, um, North Carolina doesn't have anything that express. Um, the plaintiff said, well, if you look at there's a free and fair elections clause, there's a free speech clause, there's a petitioning clause, there's an equal protection clause. And when you kind of cobble those things together, state Supreme Court, we think this means that the state can't excessively entrench itself or its own party at the expense of another when drawing these maps. Um, and the state Supreme Court in sort of a divided decision said, yeah, we agree. Um, you know, this is somewhat new for us to construe under the state constitution, but we agree. There's this anti-gerrymandering provision of the state constitution that applies in this case, go back, do your maps again, considering the principles that we have here. All well and good, uh, except that most of the time uh, that would be the end of the matter because it's a matter of state law. And the United States Supreme Court, while it's supreme, really only gets to deal with federal issues and only sort of handles these federal questions. So when it's state courts interpreting the state constitution, normally the Supreme Court has very little to say about. There's some very rare exceptions, which is one of the things that maybe is the impetus for a case like this. But the challengers went to the United States Supreme Court and they said, we're going to challenge and appeal just the congressional maps, not the state legislative maps, but just our congressional maps. And here's our argument. Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, you should reverse what the state Supreme Court did because the United States Constitution, the Elections Clause, which is in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, says that the times, places, and manner of holding elections are to be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And that word legislature here matters, the, the challenger said. They said well, that word legislature means us, this legislative body that goes in and draws district. And you can't just have, you know, people off the street draw districts. You, you can't have the executive draw districts. Likewise, you can't have the courts draw districts. And in fact, the state constitution can't tell us how to draw district. That's because this is a federal function given to us by the United States Constitution. And we can only be bound by whatever the United States Constitution says. Or if Congress wants to, because another part of the elections clause is the times, places, and manner of holding elections, Congress can make or alter those rules. So if Congress wants to come in and develop rules, that's great. It can provide a check, provide some additional opportunity. But right here, the state Supreme Court in construing the state constitution, and in particular, not some sort of specific clause in the constitution, but, but sort of this generic claim, in fact, sort of four clauses that you read all together, to suggest there's an anti-gerrymandering component of the Constitution, strips us of, of our power, strips us of the power to make political judgments about where the district lines ought to go. And if that's the case, it was unconstitutional for the state court to sort of take that power away from us.
So that's kind of the heart of what the petitioners here, what the state legislature is arguing and how the case got to where it is. Very helpful background. As promised, let's just go directly to Eliza and appreciate um, your being here as well. And you have the floor and then we'll get into some Q&A. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for joining. Professor Muller is absolutely right in how he described, you know, this case and how it is um, presenting itself or how it came to be in in the Supreme Court. And the petitioners in the case who are two legislators out of North Carolina are arguing that they should be able to to apply their partisan gerrymandered map in North Carolina. And they're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in and intervene in um, what, as Professor Mel described, is generally a state law matter, an interpretation of, of the state constitution and the, the maps drawn by the state legislature. And they're relying on this notion called the independent state legislature theory and their interpretation of the elections and electors clause. And the phrase independent state legislature theory is not particularly um, illuminating as to what, what exactly that means and then what the consequences would be. In the particular case, Moore versus Harper, the consequences, if the court were to adopt the theory offered by petitioners, could be that the North Carolina legislature would get to reinstate it's gerrymandered maps. But the theory being offered by the court goes potentially much beyond North Carolina or partisan gerrymandering and could have widely destabilizing consequences for election administration throughout the country, not just in one particular state. I generally think of the consequences of this theory, the independent state legislature theory, in four buckets. The first and most obvious is the is about partisan gerrymandering. If the court says that the North Carolina legislature can effectively violate the North Carolina Constitution as interpreted by the North Carolina State Court, then that would green light partisan gerrymandering across the country because, as Professor Miller indicated, federal courts have already closed their doors to partisan gerrymandering claims. And state courts are the only forum for adjudicating whether partisan gerrymandering is okay because federal the federal judiciary is out of the business of striking down um, partisan gerrymanders. So if you take away federal courts and you take away state courts, then we could have a proliferation of partisan gerrymanders for congressional districts. The theory could also upend redistricting commissions because those commissions that draw congressional districts are not the legislature. And therefore, depending on um, if the court embraces this theory and the version of the theory that the court does embrace, if if it does so at all, the the ability of independent redistricting commissions to draw congressional districts could disappear because, again, those, those commissions are not the legislature. So between greenlighting of partisan gerrymandering and the potential nullification of the authority of redistricting commissions, fair representation could become much more difficult in states across the country and in some places even impossible. So there's the gerrymandering bucket. Then I think about the implications for voting access more broadly. And this theory on the whole removes checks and balances on state legislatures. It could remove the check and balance of state courts. It would remove potentially the check and balance of of state constitutions that typically constrain state legislatures when they enact laws, including laws that apply to federal elections. And if the theory were embraced, and if it were embraced in a a robust manner, that would remove the check and balance of state courts and state constitutions, which means a state legislature could adopt policies that make it harder to vote 
in those states, even when those policies would have been struck down by state courts pursuant to state constitutions. So we could see more voter suppression laws coming out of state legislatures when they are not constrained by the checks and balances of state courts. And it's worth noting that federal law absolutely still applies. So federal constitutional protections and federal statutory protections for voting rights will remain regardless of what the court decides in um, Moore versus Harper. But of course, we have seen the Supreme Court undermine the most powerful provisions of the Voting Rights Act and undercut other federal voter protections over the last 15 years or so. Um, So the protections afforded by federal law are weaker now than they have been. And state courts and state constitutions have been the um, more protective entities for voters in recent years. The the sort of third bucket I think of in terms of consequences of the independent state legislature theory, if the court were to embrace it, is that this theory could create election chaos. That's because if the court were to embrace a version of the theory that, that precludes the ability of state constitutions, secretaries of state, local election officials to make policy that pertains to federal elections, that could effectively nullify a big swath of policymaking that already exists for purposes of federal elections. And then election officials would have to administer elections potentially under a two-tiered set of laws. One set of laws that applies to state and local elections and then another set of laws that applies only to federal elections. And the laws that apply only to federal elections might exclude regulations promulgated by secretaries of state, constitutional provisions that specifically outline how election processes should be undertaken, and policies adopted by local election administrators who are often given authority and discretion to make policies for the elections that they run to suit their constituents. And then the last um, sort of big bucket of consequences, as I think about this theory, is that the theory would remove checks and balances that constrain efforts at election sabotage and election interference. We've seen over the last couple of years, state legislatures introducing and in some instances passing legislation that makes election interference or election sabotage easier um, by potentially changing the vote counting rules or placing more authority in partisan offices to uh, regulate processes or determine outcomes. And while the independent state legislature theory is absolutely not a license to coup, it does open the door for state legislatures to, for example, change vote counting processes in a way that could make them more vulnerable to interference by officials or others. So not only would this create election chaos, but it would undermine the election processes that in a way that could potentially affect outcomes or at a minimum could affect the public trust in election processes, which itself has a domino effect on participation. Um, So those are the practical consequences of the independent state legislature theory if the court were to adopt it. Thank you, Eliza. I appreciate that. And I would invite each of you to, you know, certainly respond to anything the other panelists have said here. But let me let me just start off by, uh, before, I want to get into the potential scope and, and into the merits of the arguments, but let's start off a little bit by zooming out and, and just asking, what are the antecedents of this theory or doctrine or whatever we want to call it 
where where does it come from? And I would I when I first started looking at this, I encountered um, some discussion around Bush v. Gore 22 years ago, um, but it even goes back further than that. Uh, would either of you care to talk a little bit about how this issue, with you know, in, at this late stage in our republic, um, is is now coming to the forefront? And and is this the first time it's ever come up? There's a lot of contested history about it. <laughs> so let's start with that about. What we originally conceive of as the word legislature doing in the Constitution, how we think of it functioning elsewhere, because the word legislature, you know, the legislature was supposed to choose senators, the legislature ratifies amendments and so on. So there's all kinds of interesting things there. You can find some things, you know, in 1910 or 1810, 1820, a little bit about it. But really, I would say it was shortly after the Civil War um, that we started to see an uptick about these cases. And they're not really in court. Um, really in Congress. You know, Congress is empowered, each House of Congress is empowered to judge the qualifications, elections, and returns of its members. Um, this is a prerogative of Parliament, something that we sort of brought over in the Constitution, something that we think actually the best guard of each chamber is itself, <laughs> that we don't want external interference from it. So, you know, one of the more famous cases is a case called Baldwin versus Trowbridge, which is a versus case, but it's not in the courts. It comes out of Congress, where um, during the Civil War, Michigan has a statute or has a constitutional provision in the state constitution that says you have to vote in person in the state. Um, And the Michigan legislature says, well, we got a lot of soldiers like fighting in the Civil War. Can we just send them absentee ballots so they can come back and like we can count their votes? That violates the state constitution, right? And and unlike, you know, Eliza's point, which she was raising the earlier point to say, well, you know, there's this risk about undercutting elections. Like, actually, this was a way of like broadening the franchise, right? It's an interesting sort of contrast. And the Congress looks at it and says, well, of course, like, at least in our judgment, the state legislature is like given this federal power. It can't be constrained by the state constitution telling it what to do. We're not, if we can come up with the rules for elections as Congress, then surely the state legislature can't do it. So you see like these fits and starts of this kind of thing. Again, it's in Congress, late 19th century. You know, some people will say, well, how strong of an inference is this? You know, it's during the Civil War. It's Republicans and Democrats really fighting in sort of partisan ways and so on and so forth. So there's like that kind of contested history. For the last 60 years, we don't really have election contests decided in Congress anymore, right? Like for the most part, Congress is very deferential, right? The last time Congress overturned an election was 40 years ago in Congress. So it's very rare, right? Then there's sort of the second strain. It's the one you, you led with, John, to say, you know, in 2000, there's Bush versus Gore, and a majority of the Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore, when it takes this recount case out of Florida, says, well, I mean, here's the problem. You've kind of used inconsistent standards. Different counties are doing different things. You're recounting some. You're not recounting others. The standards for the recount vary. That's an equal protection violation. It's kind of like the heart of that case. But Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote separately on behalf of himself, Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, and said, We've got another problem. It's actually under Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, a different provision, but the same language that uses this legislature thereof, that each state shall appoint in a manner directed by the legislature thereof a number of electors. And what had happened is the legislature passes some statutes saying, well, canvassing shall be completed by this date in November, and you have to certify the election. And the Florida Supreme Court looked at that and said, well, the shall here, like we don't construe it as as binding. We think of it more as a may in this context. And here's the state. And so it kind of construed the state statutes in a way that might not have been the heart of what the legislature really wanted with the language like shall. And Chief Justice Rehnquist, again, only on behalf of three justices, said, we think you departed so seriously from the ordinary means of statutory interpretation 
that you effectively usurp the legislative role, courts. And when you do that, like we have a role to play to check to make sure the state legislature gets to appoint the electors the way it wants. So that's something that kind of floated up in 2000 and has kind of been coming up once in a while, but a lot in 2020. <laughs> um, and a lot because state courts and state executives during COVID were making lots of kind of changes, right? They're making changes to adjust voting during a pandemic. Some of those things expressly permitted and authorized by the legislature, other things a little bit more gray or other things under the state constitution. So that's kind of where we see this sort of resurgence of the issues that have arisen here. Isn't it a, a little bit unusual for the question of state statutory interpretation to be decided by a federal court? Absolutely. I think that's one of the um, peculiarities of the independent state legislature theory and um, sort of goes to um, one of the reasons why it is problematic is that it invites federal courts to weigh in to matters of state law, and it potentially turns into a federal case any state election law issue that comes up. So if a county official extends a po polling place hours because um, the doors wouldn't open at the polling place um, when voters got there, and the, the county official exercises their discretion to, to extend the polling place hours at that particular location, whether that county official did that consistent with what the state legislature would permit becomes a federal question. Really, the minutia of state election law administration gets turned into a, a question for federal courts. And the sort of premise of the independent state legislature theory on its surface is is um, that it would give states more autonomy and more power and protect the like autonomy and integrity of state decision making. But actually, what it really does would invite federal intrusion into the state lawmaking process and the way that states have decided to set up their systems of government and construct their legislature as a creature of their own constitution and uh, and to give power to state courts to say what the law is in the state. When you sort of scrutinize actually what this theory would permit vis-a-vis -vis federal courts, I think it undermines what the theory is purportedly intended to do. Let me ask a question again, a sort of a background nature, but it does go to the sort of elephant in the room. It seems as though this is a doctrine that's being advocated by on sort of the conservative side of the spectrum. And I know that some of the federalist, you know, attorneys associated with the federalist um, movement, and of course, the the three uh, justices in the Bush v. Gore case, is this, is this a doctrinal matter or is this a political matter of political power? What I have seen, and again, it's, it's, it's tough to know what happens, right? If this case breaks in favor of North Carolina of the legislature, it might not necessarily have a partisan valence long term, might not necessarily. Here's what I mean by that, because there are some places, right, like Connecticut has in its constitution pretty stringent rules for absentee balloting, and they're trying to amend that, actually. And the legislature has tried to be very generous about absentee balloting, but they feel hamstrung by the state constitution. So it might very well be that you could step in one day and say, well, wait a minute, I know the Constitution says we can only have absentee balloting under these circumstances, but we actually want to expand it. We want to provide additional opportunities. Or likewise, there was some, um, shall we say, frivolous air litigation in Arizona recently talking about, oh, this is what absentee ballots have to do. Or the same in Pennsylvania, actually, under the state constitution. Here's how absentee ballots have to go. Here's the location for depositing ballots. There are lots of things that sort of Democratic-affiliated groups have been litigating or might want to litigate or legislate 
Uh, but they haven't, you know, broken the glass yet, if you will, on that topic. Because there's no question right now, it has been mostly Republicans challenging, saying the state Supreme Court went too far. This redistricting, and when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, right, that genie's out of the bottle for both parties in a lot of parts of the country. So right now, I think you're entirely right, John, to say it has been sort of more conservative groups pushing and pressing for this over the last 20 years. And there's no question in this case, it would be a Republican gerrymander in North Carolina. Um, at the same time, I kind of wonder at the end of the day, if the Supreme Court opens the door, what will happen in terms of the sort of incentives? Will one party still, will, will sort of more Democratic affiliated groups buckle down and say, no, 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 we're going to try to slam this door as narrowly shut as possible because we think like that's the wrong way to go? Or will it be tempt tempting to go litigate those cases too and say, hey, we've got these other things in, in states like Pennsylvania or Arizona or, or Connecticut where we feel like we've got a good claim to shut down some other issue? You know, it remains to be seen to me, but I don't know. But but you're right to identify that that it is an elephant in the room. <laughs> like that does have this partisan valence right now. Eliza, do you have comments on that on that question of the of the ideological nature of this fight? Well, certainly it has been an ideological fight to date and most recently. And the, we saw the the this independent state legislature theory pressed it at the Supreme Court in 2020 by President Trump and the RNC in a number of cases, effectively trying to change policies that were in place in 2020 to enable people to be able to vote safely during the election that were instituted by um, decisions of state Supreme Courts, um, state boards of elections, or secretaries of state. So in, in 2020, this was very much the cudgel of the independent state legislature theory was used it, or attempted to be used in a partisan manner. It That failed in 2020. But I think it's worth noting that the consequences of the theory would be potentially bad regardless of party. And as Professor Miller indicated, both parties partisan gerrymander and partisan gerrymanders were struck down in New York and Maryland this year. Gerrymanders you know, proposed or mapped proposed by the Democratic legislatures in, in those states. So it is good for small d democracy to ensure that state courts retain the jurisdiction to reject partisan gerrymanders under the state constitutions. And it's good for both parties. And there are numerous examples like that. So let me ask a question, um, our prerogative here about something in, unique, not unique, but special to Maine. We have a frequent use of our citizen initiative uh, powers here, and um, including in the area uh, that touches on federal elections. Um, we have in 2016 enacted a system of ranked choice voting for um, congressional elections, including primaries and general elections. And now uh, the legislature has extended that to ranked choice voting for presidential primaries. We've also had, and in the course of this uh, enactment, there was legislative partial repeal and then a citizen initiative, once again, under the authority to, for what we call a people's veto, to undo what the legislature had done. And we've also had legislative activity that's been undone by the voters in the area of same-day voter registration. I guess the question here, as one of the, um, in, in the Q&A person put it, um, can the people be the legislature acting with their citizen initiative power or their people's veto power? So there are a couple of Supreme Court cases already on this. Um, and again, it depends on 
which way the theory goes, we can talk more about this, about, you know, about 100 years ago in a case called Davis versus Hildebrandt, um, Ohio had a referendum provision in its constitution that said when the legislature has these, when it comes up with congressional districting maps, um, it actually goes out to the people for referendum to essentially give it that veto power. And the court there, uh, you know, again, 100 years ago, so that was okay. That was an acceptable exercise of power. So the ability of the people to veto what the legislature has done was okay. Um, And then several years ago, in a case called Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, again, to Eliza's earlier point, thinking about redistricting commissions, the people by ballot initiative had transferred sort of this, this redistricting power to the commission to draw these districts. And when Arizona challenged the congressional side, again, under the elections clause, goes up to the Supreme Court and was a divided court, 5-4, some of those members are no longer on the court, said, no, this is an acceptable exercise of the lawmaking power. When it says legislature, especially the people of Arizona, like when they came in as a, as a state, they were very passionate about direct democracy. And we think they're exercising the legislative function here. Perfectly acceptable for them to sort of hand that power off to an independent redistricting commission. And even in Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court favorably cites things like Florida's Fair Districts Amendment as a part of its state constitution. Again, another thing that was enacted by ballot initiative um, to be able to sort of constrain what the state legislatures are doing. So you have some precedents talking about how the people can do these things, can be a part of the lawmaking process, and even can pass constitutional amendments that constrain the legislature. And again, those constitutional amendments presumably are judicially enforceable. So this case could go in one very narrow direction and says, well, those are sort of direct lawmaking exercises of the people. North Carolina, like, I'm not sure, like, we don't have that sort of clear language. Multiple amicus briefs in this case said, well, if there were clear language in the state constitution, it would be a different matter than this, which is like piecing together four different parts of the North Carolina constitution. And something like ranked choice voting in the state constitution, I think, rises to that level of clear statement. But the court could go much broader. And, you know, to some of Eliza's concerns, it's like, yeah, it could be sort of saying, no, the, the state constitution just can't constrain you. And maybe we're going to overturn some of these other decisions. Maybe that means the people can't directly restrain you either. And that's part of the wait and see sort of uncertainty of this case. You're not saying that the Supreme Court might actually overturn one of its major previous decisions. <laughs> It hasn't been heavily pressed by the litigants so far. There's a couple places where it's like dropped in footnotes to like undo some of these cases, but they've tried not to go that direction. But but of course, the Supreme Court doesn't have to listen to them. It can make its own decision. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is what's at stake in Moore v. Harper, gerrymandering, and more. This show was pre-recorded on September 29th. You can send your comments or questions to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. Our guest host this week is my colleague, John Brodigam, Senior Advisor and Counsel to the League of Women Voters of Maine. His guests are Derek Muller, who holds the Ben V. Willey Professorship in Excellence at the University of Iowa College of Law, and Eliza Swearen-Becker, Counsel in the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. We'll rejoin the conversation now as John asks our guests what they think are the strongest arguments in favor of North Carolina independent legislative theory. What do you think are the strongest arguments in favor of the North Carolina legislature here? And I assume that a narrow ruling would be more likely to be 
prevail and get five votes than a than a broader ruling, but maybe not. Well, the first thing I'll say is I don't actually think there are particularly uh, strong arguments in favor of the petitioners. Uh, but I do think that one of the reasons that we have seen several justices writing on the shadow docket indicating an openness to the independent state legislature theory is that on its face, if you're looking at these two provisions of the Constitution in a vacuum, they use the word legislature. So if you are doing sort of very rough and shoddy textualism and not considering the words in context, then a person could read that word legislature to mean to the exclusion of other policymaking entities in the state and to the exclusion of the ordinary lawmaking process that states undertake. So there is an intuitive like textualist appeal to the independent state legislature theory. But I think that for me and for many other scholars who have been writing about this, that textualist appeal dissolves when you actually look at the provision in context and you look at the history around the founding, the practice around the founding and all of the a long body of precedent rejecting this theory in a number of different ways. I don't want to dive too far away from your question, which is what is the strongest argument in favor of the theory. So I'll, I'll let Professor Roller jump in if he wants to add anything there. Well, yeah, I think relatedly, and this is something that came out really in the dissent in that Arizona case, is that word legislature actually, so, so we can think about that sort of simple notion about legislature and what that means. But let's look at the rest of the Constitution, they say in Arizona. They say when it comes to like the 17th Amendment, uh, you know, when we had to take that power away from the legislature to be able to allow the people to choose senators, we thought there was a very strong difference between the legislature and the people. That's why we had to amend the Constitution. It was the legislature, this institutional body that, that chose senators. And we couldn't just like pass a law to give that power to the people. It was it was something the legislature had. Or Article Five amendments to the Constitution. There's a case called Hawk versus Smith, a very another very old case where the court says, you know what, the governor actually has no veto power here. It doesn't actually matter what your state constitution says. Article Five says the legislature gets to ratify constitutional amendments, and if the legislature wants to abolish slavery or enfranchise women or whatever it wants to do, the the governor can't veto that. So there's strength in pointing and saying like, well, in these other places, the legislature does these things. Now, in Smiley versus Holm, a different case where the Supreme Court talks about how the governor can veto election laws under Article One, Section Four, it says, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Legislature means different things in different contexts of the Constitution, an election function, a ratifying function. And that's different from a lawmaking function. And that's the context that sort of Eliza is setting up to say, well, it's making laws. right? So when you're making laws, it's very different than these other things the Constitution is talking about. So I think that's where a lot of sort of this play is coming from, thinking about what that term legislature means and how much we can import its meaning from other parts of the Constitution. So I think part of the the context is actually right in the Constitution itself in terms of the presidential electors provision, uh, Article 2, Section 1. Um, if you parse it out, it says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So it's actually the state that is appointing the electors in a manner chosen by the legislature. Just, I mean, it's just a little bit more context as to what legislature means there, that this is not 
um, the legislature, at least with respect to the electors clause here, is not acting independent of the rest of the state, at least to some extent. So let's start looking forward. We have some justices who have sort of tipped their hand, at least in the terms of their interest of this, and there are some who are unlikely perhaps um, to buy into the, the it's certainly the, the strongest form of the argument. But if you were litigating this case, um, you know, how would you frame your arguments to try to get that, you know, the opinion of the court on your side? Um, who's going to be the decisive votes here? And what are the arguments that are going to be persuasive to them? Well, I think certainly the chief will be a decisive vote, and the chief was actually in the dissent in the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case. And that instance suggested that he might be sympathetic to the independent state legislature theory. Um, But the chief also wrote the Rucho decision, um, pointing to the state courts as the um, proper forum to adjudicate partisan gerrymanders and pointing to approving, um, as Professor Miller said, Uh, provisions of the Florida Constitution that substantively constrain um, congressional redistricting in Florida, for example. Um, So I think uh, potentially um, Chief Justice Roberts is a a swing vote in this case. Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh are potentially, are at a minimum open questions and could be um, persuaded to, potentially persuaded to reject the independent state legislature theory. The one thing I think is worth noting about the justices that have tipped their hands to date And this is not to say that they are necessarily ready and willing to change their minds, but they have they have written they have signaled their openness to the independent state legislature theory in separate writings on the shadow docket. So in cases that came up to the Supreme Court in emergency postures where there wasn't full merits briefing, where there wasn't oral argument and those justices haven't seen all of the evidence that rejects the independent state legislature theory and all of the history that that refutes this theory as something that was intended to be written into the Constitution by the framers or understood to be written into the Constitution. This court is particularly interested in founding era history, and that founding era history is fairly persuasive in refuting the independent state legislature theory. So I think that is a particular line of argument that I I expect that respondents will make, and I think they have a a lot of good history to be able to draw on to reflect that it wasn't the founders intent to allow legislatures, state legislatures to operate outside the ordinary lawmaking context and without checks and balances. Um, And the practice at the time of the founding included things like judicial review, state constitutions that contained substantive um, limitations on legislatures when they made election law, including law for federal elections. Um, So so the history and the practice at the time of the founding that the court at least purports to care so much about should lead the court to um, reject petitioner's argument here. I wouldn't uh, deign to predict exactly what where every justice will come out on this issue. But I think from our perspective at the Brennan Center, this is a, a case that is winnable by respondents because the um, evidence and the history and the text in context, it all points in favor of the respondents. Sort of two things. One, to jump off the point Eliza raised, it's, it's true. I, on this like emergency orders docket where you've got very limited briefing, a very compressed window, even Justice Alito in this case, when he was addressing whether or not to stay the congressional maps, kind of says like, well, there should be some limit at least 
I kind of think there is, and there's actually some hedging language in his opinion, which is not, he's not a shrinking violet on the court, right? So there's something interesting there about the, the tentative nature. But the second, I think, is also to think about line drawing, about manageability, because whenever the Supreme Court has to articulate like what is or isn't legislature, again, some of these ideas have been floating around out there, and they're at least intuitive to me to think about drawing lines. Oh, a clear statement. We can't substantively bind the legislature or whatever it might be. But then like getting down to brass tacks, like how, how are the state courts going to administer that? And it's principally going to be the state courts. Occasionally, federal courts might principally the state courts doing it. And how many times is the United States Supreme Court then going to be called upon to clarify what those lines are, when they go too far, what they might be, how, how much precedent they're willing to undo? I think there's a lot of manageability and line drawing problems in this case. Um, the, the amicus briefs and the briefing so far have not really coalesced around a single issue. They've offered different ways of thinking about it. There's one brief put out by the Conference of Chief Justices of the United States, um, which sort of says, don't do this court. But if you do, here's like a very, very, very narrow out for extreme situations. That might also be a very attractive approach for the court that that sort of shuts down these claims, except for sort of a, an escape escape hatch in very extreme cases. But I think the manageability question is something I'm watching for the court. And I'm not sure there's a majority coalescing around a single view. In addition to the judicial manageability, which is like, I think, a complete morass if the court opens this door, there also becomes the election administration manageability. And I think there are at least some justices on the court who are sensitive to the the pragmatic, practical needs of election administrators to be able to run their elections with some degree of certainty about what the law is and with, with uh, consistency between state and federal law so they're not effectively just running two different elections. You know, having talked to lots of election administrators about this issue, they really do not want the court to adopt the independent state legislature theory. Just as a practical matter, it would make the day to day of running elections very difficult. Is there a possible dividing line um, around um, the kinds of things that the legislature might be entitled to unquestioned respect, like this notion of substantive decisions versus process kinds of values? Um, is that does that dividing line have any potential to shape the opinion? So again, you could, but that would be a pretty broad one. It would call into question things like the Arizona redistricting case. It would call into question independent redistricting commissions. It would call into question some of the assumptions made in Rucho, where the court seems to recognize that state court state constitutions can sometimes bind the legislature when it comes to drawing federal maps. So again, it's it's an easier line. And I think there is a process substance. The courts have to deal with that. It's messy in other places, but it's doable. <laughs> but it shows it would be a rather expansive one, right? And would require the court to reconsider some of its precedents, I think, um, in ways that might be a much bigger sort of ask and have a larger fallout, to Eliza's point, about other provisions of the state constitution that could affect how manner rules uh, apply in the election. So, what is the narrowest possible ruling that the court might issue that would? affirm the legislature of North Carolina's position. So this is kind of the Conference of Chief Justices brief. And this gets to like, again, this is unusual for the Supreme Court to step in and evaluate state law, but it's not unprecedented. And they want to cite actually those precedents. So 100 years ago, there was a case out of Indiana where a teacher was suing and saying, you know, you breached my contract 
uh, state, uh, I'm suing for the impairment of obligations of contracts under the United States Constitution. And the state Supreme Court considers that and says, you know what? You don't have a contract under our law. Like it's just an, an like a thing you have as a matter of will of the legislature. You don't have a contract. And the United States Supreme Court says, well, hold on a second. We're not just going to let you say there's no contract because how else are we going to vindicate the federal right to prevent you from the impairment of the obligation of contracts? So we kind of have to peek at state law to figure out whether or not there's actually a contract before we get to this federal issue. And they're a very similar thing in Florida 30 years ago where the state Supreme Court said, oh, you don't have a property interest in this in this land, in this beachfront property. Therefore, there's no taking of your property that requires compensation. And the United States Supreme Court says, hold on a second, before you just go around saying what property is, we need to step in and check and make sure and assume you're doing law the normal way before we step in. The very narrow approach again advocated by this brief is to say you can step in if you deviate from the normal sort of lawmaking process or statutory interpretation process. And it implicates a federal interest, like a significant federal interest, like the, like vindicating these constitutional rights that are at stake. Um, if that's the case, that's a very narrow window <laughs> and like a very narrow way for the court to identify. It. And I don't think something that the petitioners, the legislature wins on here. And maybe most people will not win on while leaving the door open a hairline crack. So that, that's, I think, the, the narrowest possible grounds for to sort of give a victory of a legal theory. <laughs> but the petitioners still lose. Yeah, I mean, there. I would just say there are other principles and and limitations on state courts when they act in a manner that is so rogue and well beyond their judicial role. For example, potentially due process limits. If the court were to embrace a very very small version of so something like the independent state legislature theory, it wouldn't have to impose some kind of new limitation. Um, but would could draw from existing principles and, and constitutional law to say, OK, well, there there may be some limits on what state courts can do. And those limits actually derive from a different part of the Constitution. But those limits weren't breached here because actually what the state court was doing here in um, North Carolina was something that the legislature authorized them to do, which is to um, remedy or to pro- provide for new maps if the court otherwise struck them down. We don't have an instance here of a, of state courts going totally rogue and violating um, the sort of boundaries of their role. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a question kind of coming from the Q&A. I, uh, prior to, you know, this summer, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a coalition of state Supreme Court chief justices. Um, but now they've submitted what I think was the first amicus brief in this case. And I don't know whether any, I don't think anybody on the court now comes from a state court or state Supreme Court. But do you think there's any sort of sense of comedy, of a, a comity, I should say, of respecting state court prerogatives that um, the court might, you know, find reason to be deferential to the state Supreme Courts? I would think and and would hope so. I mean, the fact that the Conference of Chief Justices even weighed in in this case is a big deal. They don't generally um, sort of get in the business of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, they they filed an amicus brief in support of neither party. Um, but as Professor Miller indicated, their brief very clearly is asking the court to reject this theory and to stay out of the business of state courts. 
And there is a sort of narrow in the alternative argument that the Conference of Chief Justices offers, but primarily they are, they are um, arguing against the independent state legislature theory. And the fact that they have weighed in here is very significant and I think should entitle, should merit attention and some deference from the Supreme Court justices, because um, just as it is the U.S. Supreme Court justices to say what the law is with respect to federal law, um, it is the role of these state Supreme Courts to say what the law is with respect to state law. And adopting any version of this theory would sort of create a big breach into um, state law and state judicial review and an incursion and interference with the state ordinary state lawmaking process and state judicial review. Let me ask, there's a couple questions in the chat relating to Congress. And um, of course, as Derek, I think you pointed out when we very first started, Congress does have a great deal of authority to kind of clarify and straighten things out and set some standards and so on with respect to federal elections. It's hard to prognosticate what the court will do. Um, everybody has fun prognosticating about what Congress will or won't do. But what do you think? Is there any actual chance that Congress will serve as a check and balance in this in this regard? I want to emphasize, you know, we are talking this can only extend to federal elections. So there, there is that risk of sort of two tier stuff. But but it is in some respects narrow, Again, thinking about potential other fallout. And then, yeah, Congress can always come on top and regulate things. And, you know, Eliza's earlier point, you know, the Supreme Court has been um, interpreting the Voting Rights Act more narrowly, finding provisions of it unconstitutional. So there are those challenges. But there is also gobs of really important federal statutes, Uniform and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act, for one, um, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act for polling places and other kinds of voter accessibility there's lots of federal statutes that deal with mechanics. Now, a lot, a lot that goes unspoken, right? A lot of things that are left to the state processes. Um, and what we've seen in Congress recently is like a pretty sharp, um, you know, bifurcation as like it seems to be like an all or nothing approach right now. Um, Democrats are proposing 900 page bills on election administration. Um, that's a lot of changes and a lot of stuff in the system. Um, and Republicans' interest is basically at zero pages of, of election administration, right? And are, are there places where they might be able to sort of step in and address things on narrow niche topics? Potentially. Depending what the Supreme Court does here, does that motivate some to say there's a risk of instability? Or if they're, if your independent redistricting commission, which, by the way, is how you got elected to Congress, to the members of Congress who are there, um, you know, goes away... Are you at risk of sort of losing your seat? So there might be some thoughts in Congress, like depending on what the court does, some places for some agreement to say, okay, let's step in and sort of ratify some of these things or constrain how the states are behaving. Maybe. But, you know, it's really hard to get legislation done. It's really hard even when the Supreme Court speaks on voting rights matters or construes statutes narrowly or finds them unconstitutional for Congress to find common ground to address those changes and those things. So, um, you know, I, I don't put a lot of money behind Congress acting, but I, I do identify that that there are the opportunities to find perhaps some of the more narrow grounds to address these issues to the extent that the Supreme Court is is sort of opening the door to, to state courts being shut out of the process. So, Eliza, you were there in Congress in July, I think it was. And, you know, we haven't given up hope on the Electoral Count Act. How do you how do you see this question? Well, it does um, appear that there is 
movement and bipartisan support for reforming the Electoral Count Act, that that reform doesn't have a particular relationship with the independent state legislature theory or Moore versus Harper. Um, so absolutely, it, it uh, makes sense to reform the Electoral Count Act and shore up some ambiguities that um, folks attempted to exploit in 2020 and 2021. But that doesn't particularly bear on the consequences that could ensue if the court were to adopt the independent state legislature theory. So more more would be more is needed from Congress, regardless of whether the, the court adopts the independent state legislature theory. Um, the Brennan Center has been a strong supporter, for example, of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which were merged into an omnibus bill, the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act, that would restore some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court has gutted over the last 15 years or so, and also ensure access to voting and to voting methods that are not equally available across the country, like mail voting, early voting, automatic voter registration. Um, So Congress has a big role to play in ensuring that people can access their right to vote in free and fair elections, and Congress can be doing more by passing legislation that that would reform some of the the mechanics of elections. I don't have a lot of optimism that that's going to happen imminently, um, uh, as Professor Mueller indicated. Um, It looks like some of the more narrower steps at least will come first. Hopefully, they will be a a prelude to um, some of the broader reforms that we would hope to see. But I do think it's a good sign that there is bipartisan support for reform of the Electoral Count Act, that there is bipartisan recognition that some aspects of our election process were under attack in 2020 and therefore need to be addressed by Congress. And hopefully Congress can build on that momentum if they are able to um, enact the reforms of the Electoral Count Act. Um, So I am cautiously, I'm more cautiously optimistic at this moment of this year than I have been in other times of this year. For a final question, let me circle back to where we started with redistricting and gerrymandering. Is it your sense that the court is um, content to just say that gerrymandering is not a constitutional problem and that it's a political problem up to the states? And if the states are going to gerrymander away, then, you know, the, the solution is at the ballot box not in the, in the courts. Is that is that where we are? I think that's where we are. I mean, that was a majority of the court. I think it's only uh, those lines have hardened, <laughs> I would say, by now. Now, it's worth noting the political process has been more effective than I think a lot of people anticipated in terms of ballot initiatives and uh, you know some of the state litigation, although, again, we're, we're challenging one of those state cases here today. And But New York and Maryland, Florida, and, you know, and Ohio with an asterisk, and, other, and in Michigan, other places. So I think it's, it's an open question about how much the political process plays out. But I don't see the federal courts as being interested in addressing this at any time in the near future. Yeah, they've uh, very clearly washed their hands of partisan gerrymandering uh, for, for the time being. Is there a role for Congress <laughs> as a check and balance on partisan gerrymandering? Absolutely. And part of the democracy reforms that were um, part of the Freedom to Vote and um, John R. Lewis Act was limitations on partisan gerrymandering um, and the establishment of independent redistricting commissions. Congress has an important role to play on, you know, all manner of election regulations. And in fact, the Constitution says Congress can regulate the time, place and manner of federal elections. So the 
provisions that Congress could enact bear not just on voting access, but also on redistricting for federal elections. So let me just ask you to leave us with one, any final thought of, of what is the most important takeaway here. And if there's uh, any way I can coax out of you a prediction, um, both in terms of the outcome and the breadth, narrowness of the decision, I'd like to try. But what do you think is going to happen? I mean, my guess is um, either the legislature is going to lose or if it wins, it wins narrowly. And by narrowly, I mean, I think the broadest win would be something that a, a lack of clear guidance in the state constitution um, does not permit state courts to kind of come around and interpret open-ended provisions of the constitution. I mean, there's administrability problems with that, but I think it would cabin it's the decision to a, a limited subset of cases that are pretty unusual that don't typically crop up. Um, in the United States and would uh, make it, a, again, a pretty narrow, narrow win for the legislature. Well, I'm definitely not in the business of Supreme Court prognosticating. And, and if I was, I would be out of a job. Um, but I but I will sort of repeat what I said earlier, which is that I think this is a winnable case for respondents and that there are really strong arguments in their favor. Um, and that the justices, when they are presented with all of the merits briefing for the first time, really, as this case, as this issue has arisen in the last several years, um, that they will have a lot of firm grand, ground to stand on to reject petitioner's claim. Thank you both so very much. Um, you know, we live in an era where um, the uh, political battles um, that we're all familiar with are spilling over more and more into the courts. Or maybe we've always been in that era, but it seems more uh, intense than ever. And um, the role of the courts in you know help, helping us get through the election cycles ahead of us, which promise to be contentious to say the least, is going to be you know uh, first and foremost of uh, people's minds. So. Um, really, really appreciate the light that you've shed on on this important case coming up. And I know that there will be others, um, but this one seems to be probably in this upcoming session, uh, the one that will have the most people grabbing their popcorn and trying to get a front row seat, because I think it's a very, very interesting case, a lot on the line. We really appreciate your taking some time and sharing your really uh, impressive expertise with all of us. That's our show for this month. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today was what's at stake in Moore v. Harper, gerrymandering and more. Thank you to our host, our guest host this week, John Browdyam, Senior Advisor and Counsel to the League of Women Voters, and to our guests, Derek Muller, who holds the Ben B. Willie Professorship in Excellence at the University of Iowa College of Law, and Eliza Swearenbecker, Counsel in the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, you can send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thanks for listening.